Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, English acting royalty in the form of Jim Broadbent and Penelope Wilton who talked to me about their new movie, The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, about a man who walks the length of England to try and save his dying friend. We review the much-talked-about horror movie that everyone's raving about, Evil Dead Rise. Plus, theatre director Gary Hines chats about her favourite film. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Some nice weather arrived this week. I have been battling a small cold. A very well-known radio host told me, never tell anyone you're sick. No one wants to hear that. I'm only a small bit sick. I just had a cold, just in case you can hear any nasalness. I seem to have gotten a new summer cold or something, you know. Don't worry, I'm, you know, I'm at 90%. And, you know, my 90% is like 250% for a mere mortal. But uh, I knew I was slightly under the weather when I fell asleep on a train this week. You might think that's of no consequence, but I never sleep on public transport. I never sleep anywhere other than a bed. I've, like, crossed the Atlantic in the Indian Ocean and been wide awake in the middle of the night while plane loads of people have been asleep, you know, a plane load, not plane loads. I was on one plane, but I just, I never sleep on public transport, but but I fell asleep on Thursday evening and it terrifies me. I hate, and maybe that's the reason I can't sleep anywhere other than a bed, but I, I hate being asleep in public, like on a train or something. I'm always afraid I'll have, you know, shouted out something. I'm a good boy, mammy, or you know, copious amounts of drool or something. But anyway, that that's the minutiae of my week. Now, in TV this week, I was watching this. Right now, dig in. We don't have all day. The rerun of my show starts at eight. Resistance, Sarah, you should watch it. The War of Independence, sure it's your heritage. Oh, I will. Oh, I, I'm so interested in Irish history and literature. Yeah, I, I really want to visit the uh, Dublin Writers' Museum. Uh, sure, that's not what you came all this way for, to see what Joyce took a piss once. Why are you here? Well, I... Uh, um, I'm actually... Um, I'm, I'm trying to track down some family. Um, I'm... I'm looking for my father. You have an Irish father? God help you. It's sort of a long story, but Sure, I... she's Jimmy's daughter. <coughs> what? Yes, Susie. You're dirty, Daddy. Stuck it in an American? Canadian. Stuck it in some floozy. Um, my mother wasn't a floozy. Is this a joke? Now that is a clip from Sisters, which is on the RTE player. I think it's still going out on TV every week. Uh, yes, it is on Thursday nights, if I'm not mistaken. But the whole show is up there on the RTE player, all six episodes, which are all about 25 minutes. And you heard Susan Stanley and Sarah Goldberg there. You also heard the actress Sophie Thompson playing the mother there. And this was a show in the vein of these 
messy female shows we seem to be talking about every other week from Fleabag to Bad Sisters to The Dry, which we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago. And as I say, it's Sarah Goldberg, who's in HBO's Barry and Susan Stanley. They wrote this because they're pals and they're also starring in it. And they play two very different half-sisters. Sarah Goldberg's character has just lost her mother. She lives a pretty successful life in Canada, but she's come home because she's found out that she has an Irish daddy. And her Irish daddy is also the daddy of Susan Stanley's character, Sue's there. And there they are meeting at an awkward dinner for the first time. And as I say, the mother is played by Sophie Thompson. And what happens is they reluctantly, and I've watched the whole six episodes, they reluctantly go on a road trip to track down their missing father, even though Suze is quite reluctant. Susie's having a bit of a bad time. She's in her mid-30s. Her life is falling apart. Love life is bad. Job is bad. She's drinking too much. Sarah, on the surface, seems like the complete opposite, has it all together. This is funny, and I enjoyed it. Occasionally, there might be elements of stage Irishness, paddywhackery that was maybe courting an audience outside of Ireland. That's possibly being a bit harsh. On the whole, I laughed a lot. Good use of swear words. Uh, that they're used effectively. You know, there's a whole art to it, as Billy Connolly says. So it's very sweary, very funny. Plenty of heart in it as well, given the subject matter about trying to connect with people who you haven't in the past. And also doesn't go where you think it might go. There's also a great episode right in the middle of it where they unexpectedly attend a funeral of sorts or a wake. Uh, and we've Carrie Crowley in there as well. So all in all, a, a pretty big thumbs up for Sisters, which is available on the RT player. Well worth a watch. Not to be confused with Bad Sisters, which I suppose has certain similarities. This is Sisters. And very much a two-hander with Susan Stanley and Sarah Goldberg. And Sophie Thompson is great as the mother in there. A fraught mother figure. And uh, Pat Short's in there briefly as well. Now, I should mention just in case, I don't know if anyone else would know this, apart from two or three people, but I've actually known Susie Stanley She's one of the first people I ever knew. I grew up about four doors from her and her or her brother and myself were best pals growing up. Her mother used to babysit me. So just in case anyone texts in going, you know, this is, you're not being honest about this. You're giving this a good review. I, I have known her a long time. No, I haven't seen her in a long time also, but she was one of the first people I ever knew and her brother. So hello to the Stanleys if they're listening. And nice to see how well Susie's doing in TV. Now, something very different is this. I'm walking to Berwick-upon-Tweed. You're what? I'm going to save Queenie Hennessy. Have you been drinking? There was a girl in the garage. She had blue hair. She saved her aunt, she told me. You can't save people with cancer, not unless you're a surgeon. This is ridiculous. Come home. It isn't enough to post a letter. Please. I need to do this, Maureen. Well, if that's what you need, I had no idea. Walk to Berwick-upon-Tweed. It can only be about 500 miles. Now, that was a clip of The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Froy. And you heard Jim Broadbent there talking to Penelope Wilton. Jim is a man well into his 60s who's kind of just seeing out his retirement, him and his wife, played by Penelope Wilton, are living an uneventful life and their lives are kind of frozen with each other due to a 
kind of unspeakable conflict concerning the absence of their son. And then one day he gets a letter saying that his old friend Queenie is dying. And he gets this into his head, having talked to a young girl in a petrol station, as you heard there, that he's going to walk to the hospice she's in, nearly 500 miles away in the north of England. Uh, And he begins this, you know, modern day pilgrimage. And along the way, he meets mostly friendly people who come out and support him and take him in. And he walks the English countryside and has quite the journey. And it's a good movie. Great performances by Jim Broadbent and Penelope Wilton. Jim Broadbent is uh, an Oscar winner for his role in Iris. He's been in everything from Indiana Jones movies to Harry Potter to TV. Only Fools and Horses. He played the horrible detective cop Slater. Uh, He's a legend, as is Penelope Wilton, who's been in all sorts of things. She was Isabel Crawley in Downton Abbey. She was in Afterlife most recently. I spoke to her last year for Operation Mincemeat. So they are two, so they are two fine thespians, it's fair to say, who have had long, glittering careers. And I got to talk to them both about the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Penelope, if I can start with you, England itself looks lovely in this Uh, and it reminded me a bit of Ireland as well and English people come across lovely in it as well because most of the strangers are are very kind in this and very human and I'm not saying that's not the case I'm not making any political point or anything like that but I'm wondering was that part of the attraction of this for you that it was so wholesome and so Englishly wholesome? Um, I can't say that that was particularly the attraction I thought it was a very good, very well observed, and and, and indeed that's what what happens. And the, as as has been said many times, the kindness of strangers as to as to Harold's Harold's journey. Mm. Of course, um, Maureen has a far more bleak outlook on life to begin with, which um, she's cut herself off in that mm. sort of prison of four walls with all those very heavy net curtains and mm. would like the world to go away because she doesn't trust it anymore yeah. because of the terrible grief and bitterness she feels. And it's really through Jim's journey and his notoriety and his seeming to manage the outside world that she starts to realize that she can't do without him or has to change. Mm. Um, and she does start to change. Yeah. So, so my feelings about the English countryside in this in this film as as a person I'm a, I love and I walk a lot okay. and um, uh, so but I don't think Maureen has taken that <laughs> on board. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Well, that's a great answer to a question I probably shouldn't have asked you. Then, Jim, <laughs> I'm aware that you did the audio book of this and here you are now doing the role in the movie you know i know a gig's a gig and all but you must really love this character to want to revisit in a movie having read the entire thing into a microphone yeah i mean i've read it three times because you read you read it to see if you like it you read it to mark it up and then you read it to record it so i knew the character very well and i did uh it occurred to me if they make a film of this i'd love to play harold now I know who he is and how it mm. works. So, and luckily they did come my way. But, uh, but it's uh, no, it was an, e- an easy decision. I mean, and the idea of bringing him to life and not just reading it off the off the page was uh, exciting. Yeah, and was it was it a help or a hindrance that you'd 
already read them uh, from cover to cover into a microphone because, you know, it's it's different to play them than to read it them, is, obviously. It is a good few years between the two. Yeah. My memory isn't so good that I remembered every line. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, it was all familiar enough without being um, repetitive, if you see what I mean. It was a, it came to me fresh in a way. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And Penelope, you know, the marriage is 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 sad, you know, it's they're still together and I don't want to give any spoilers, but it feels like it's been 25 years of just utter bleakness between the two of them and they've they've been silent with each other. Was did that strike you about it when you read it? Yes, very much so. I mean, there's there's something that has thrown them apart. Hmm. It doesn't seem to be a way back for either of them. Hmm. Uh, they have decided that they found a modus vivendi of how they're going to live, and that's how they're living. Mm. But it's not what you would call a marriage. It's yeah. called it's called existence and existing with one another. Yeah. And they their separate thoughts and separate bedrooms, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a difficulty because of this sadness that's happened to them. Mm. A lot of blame from her point of view has gone on. And it's um, you know, grief is a very difficult thing and it's not always attractive. So, so it makes you spiky and cross and angry and upset and and jagged and uh, and vindictive sometimes. And you have to move through those or get rid of them. And Maureen is settled in that sort of state of mind and um, decided that the outside world is too difficult and too dangerous for her to venture out. So that's where she starts, of course, she becomes liberated by Harold's journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and Jim, you know, there, there's walking in this, but again, it might be just the illusion of camera. And I don't know what kind of physical shape you're in, but did you have to do a lot of walking for the film? I did a fair amount of walking, but um, not an excessive amount because it, mm. each walk was limited by the length of the shot. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I figured. <laughs> Sometimes the shots were quite long, but not that long. But yeah. um now, some of the uh, the junior um, assistant directors and runners did a lot more running than I did. <laughs> they, they had to run to and fro from me, or <laughs> to bring me what I while I when I wasn't filming, I was sitting in a comfy chair, and they were okay. they were still running around yeah, doing well, stuff. The clues in the title: the runners. Jim, can I just ask you, I've as mentioned before we came on air, not to age you, but I feel like I've been watching your films and TV shows since I was a kid. I spoke to Richard Eyre a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about you and Iris and you, you've, your career is large. But I'm wondering, do, do people like me regularly ask you about a show you were in, I think on only three occasions, called Only Fools and Horses, where you played the wonderful the wonderful Slater. Do, do you find people bring that up to you a lot? Because I always think of you, despite the fact that you've done so much more and you've been in these franchises that even my children love, but that's what comes to mind. Yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> and particularly in Ireland, actually, when I was filming in Ireland, various people coming, I'm the local Del Boy, you know. <laughs> Everyone calls <laughs> me Del Boy. Like, you know. So uh, but it's gone, it's, and, and kids who weren't born when we did the last uh, Fools and Horses know it off by heart. It's the it's hugely popular, and yeah. uh, one of the things I probably the thing I most mostly get recognised for. Wow! Most, 
particularly by cab drivers and uh, and, and, <laughs> and people like me. And you probably you probably only filmed for three weeks in your entire career. I did, I did three episodes. Yeah, yeah. Bit more because the 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 last two were slightly slightly longer because they so, were Christmas specials. Yeah, sort of thing. So yeah. I got yeah, but three jobs over the years. Uh, there was a few years between each one as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, lovely to talk to you both. And, and I should have said at the start, The Unlikely Pilgrimage, Apparel Fries, a, a delightful film, which I enjoyed immensely. So continued success to you both. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Jim Broadbent there and Penelope Wilton. Jim Broadbent talking to me about Only Fools and Horses. I had to bring it up. I'm sorry. I know he's, you know, won Oscars, but... Only fools. <laughs> he didn't seem to mind. And The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry is in cinemas next week, I should say. That's Friday the 28th of April. Up next, Evil Dead Rise. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to this week's new cinema releases and we're going to be looking at Evil Dead Rise, a horror movie that seems to be being close to adored by lots of people and also something very different although there are hotter elements a movie called missing i'm joined now by film critic and arts journalist chris wasser chris how are you john i'm well how are you not too bad at all now listen i got a text from someone the man who was promoting this movie going i can't believe you missed this and i'm kind of bummed that i did because i'm reading very good things about evil dead rise just at the start to say at the outset chris you have seen this this is sequel the same part of the franchise of the Sam Raimi movies from back in the early 80s it is yeah and as the posters tell us it's from the visionary producers of the original Mm -hmm. which is to say that Sam Raimi you know was 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 an integral part of this getting off the ground even Bruce Campbell was involved and it's the fifth film in the Evil Dead saga there's no real kind of there's no real straight line here and there's nothing to suggest that it's a sequel to the last one that was out, which actually wasn't directed by Sam Raimi or whether it's a a standalone sequel to the original trilogy. In other words, John, I'm not really sure where it stands in the whole setup, but it's an evil dead film. There are evil dead people. There are, you know, uh, uh, kids running for their lives. It's the same sort of setup. Yeah. And if a person, I'm not sure how much of a horror fan you are. I'm not a huge one, but if a person is a massive horror fan, the first and possibly the second evil dead, Dead movies by Sam Raimi are kind of classics of the genre, it's fair to say, and they tend to be adored, right? Oh, they yeah, they really are, yeah, and genuinely terrifying mm. too. You know, the first one made for for very little money, the second one had a little bit more behind us. Uh, but you know, the first Evil Dead film is genuinely terrifying as i said but the second one kind of adopts this sense of humor that i don't think anybody saw coming and it was a perfect blend of comedy and horror i mean the evil dead films are sometimes seen as comedy horrors yeah. but the first one was you know kind of played it a little straighter uh the third one army of darkness went absolutely bananas <laughs> using this kind of uh, time travel storyline that sam raimi originally had in mind for the second these things don't really follow any rules but a few things that we've come to get used to are you know the the the, the chainsaw elements uh ash just being you know his groovy self uh, uh terrifying happenings with you know flesh possessing uh flesh possessing demons and that sense of humor so these are all the things that we're looking for going into lee cronin's one because i mean this is the big selling point especially from an irish perspective is that you know sam raimi and bruce campbell have essentially handed the keys to this universe to a filmmaker from scary Season. yes who gave us a hole in the ground which is a great horror movie from it's probably nearly 10 years ago well maybe not 10 years ago but it's a good few years ago at this stage okay so let's get to this so no necessarily 
a through line in terms of story from the first one, but very much some of the same motifs going on. So what's actually happening plot wise in this one? Well, I'm actually glad to see that Lee Cronin has decided to shake things up a little bit. And that is to, to you know, to relocate the, the horror from a countryside cabin to this, you know, uh, decrepit urban apartment block. He does kind of, you know, set the beginning of the film at a cabin, at a lakeside retreat, and then, you know, takes us back a day or two. You know, there's always a bit of carnage at the beginning, but then, oh, what happened before this carnage? Um, but it's a contemporary story. It involves a family. It involves a, a couple of estranged sisters who haven't really been a part of one another's lies for the past year or two but we're in this apartment block where you know we're following beth and ellie beth is a guitar technician she follows rock bands around the world she hasn't really talked to her sister ellie played by lisa sutherland that beth sorry is played by lily sullivan then you've got lisa sutherland as ellie and they haven't really talked to one another in a while but beth shows up on ellie's doorstep because she is pregnant and she is wondering whether or not to keep the baby and she needs you know the advice of her bigger of her of her elder sister who already has three kids and she shows up on the same night that an earthquake hits los angeles opens up this hole in the car park underneath the family's apartment block and of course you have three teenagers in the family so the teenagers uh, approach this hole in the ground and they look inside and of course they find you know a haunted malignant text and usually in the evil dead films you also have a recording or a tape but in this case it's a vinyl so obviously these are curious teenagers they bring it up to the bedroom they, they play the vinyl and then that's when things get gory basically the mother is possessed by this you know flesh possessing demon and it's up to the sister then to protect the kids at all costs but they can't make it out of the apartment because once when the earthquake happened the, you know the staircase fell in so they're stuck in this apartment there's a haunted mom on the loose chaos ensues aha uh-huh. and is there not to jump ahead but is there some allegory or metaphor here about the fear of childbirth or, or something like that because you mentioned she's deciding whether to keep a child or not yeah i think so and i think you know you could see some of these elements at play in the hole in the ground which of course mm. started shauna cares like as a single mother raising uh uh this, this this child sort of in the middle of nowhere in ireland and struggling you know it's one of those kind of if the kid is evil and if the parents are struggling then of course there's some sort of allegory at play here <laughs> and in evil dead rise we see beth you know she's she's come home she doesn't know what to do uh you know she's 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 thinking of her career but she's also thinking you know do i want this kid and she's come to get the advice from her sister but her sister can't quite you know uh, give her that the, give her the advice that she wants because her marriage at the same time is breaking down so you've got this really tense family reunion you've got an awful lot going on underneath the surface there but once the aunt starts taking care of the kids because the mom is possessed and you know you see all of this carnage you know, comes like you. You are thinking to yourself, well, okay, Lee Cronin is definitely trying to, you know, uh, he he's, he has this, you know, family drama playing out underneath the horror. But it is all about the horror. And once the, you know, once the possession starts, it's just bananas, John. Now, in the best <laughs> possible way, because I should say we've seen a few horrors so far this year. Not many, you know. There's been there there, there have been fewer than maybe other years. But this is probably the most scared that I've been in a cinema this year. So that's a good thing for a start. You know, it's not just relying on cheap jump scares or uh, just, you know, it's not just relying on old tricks to, 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 to get our heart racing. You know, there is a genuine build up to the first bit of horror. So once we actually get there, it's like, OK, Lee, you've earned this. Let's go. So it is quite effective. Yeah. So from the reviews I've read, they've said the same kind of thing. This is genuinely scary. So it takes you up to a point, then starts to scare you and continues to relentlessly scare you kind of up until the end or... I think so. I think one of the best aspects of this film is that it just barely passes the 90 minute mark. Mm -hmm. That 
makes for a great horror. Uh, mm-hmm. Most horrors, they just can't keep you know that that the the, the scares intact after two hours and i think you know look that it, it does work this is certainly it's it's probably the most blood <laughs> that i've ever seen in an <laughs> evil dead film the the amount of fake blood in here is is unbelievable and cronin is having his fun sort of tipping his hat to the original sam raimi production but also other horror pictures you know there's a little bit of uh at times i thought there was a little bit of the babadook i play i thought there was a little bit you know of uh, uh he's maybe looking at what um the 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 conjuring universe has done a little bit you know the 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 better conjuring installments that mm-hmm. is um and also there's a very obvious uh stanley kubrick shining tip of the hat in, in, in there too i won't spoil what that involves but it okay does, it does, you know there, there, there is a lot of blood let's say um but i think the, the horror works the drama works it's very well performed it is effective if i have a quibble it is a minor one and that's Sometimes I wanted Cronin to just crack open the window and bring in the humor that this franchise is famous for. It would have just given, you know, would have just allowed us to to take a breath because even though it is only ninety odd minutes, I felt that sometimes that we just needed a bit of a break. And it's it's a shame too because the, the films, these films, especially from the second one, they are famous for having a very goofy, playful sense of humor. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. I'll give out to myself for saying that because maybe it is nice that Lee Cronin is doing his own thing, you know? And, yeah. and, and also I've heard from people that have watched it a couple of times that, you know, you can actually spot some of the, you know, very subtle comedy on a second viewing. Now, I don't know if I'll be brave enough for a second viewing just yet, <laughs> but Cronin does his own thing. It th- th- this, this series hasn't always delivered the goods. You know, I, I mentioned earlier Army of Darkness. Yeah. Army of Darkness is probably not as good as it thinks it is. I wasn't crazy about the last reboot that we got. Yeah. I think this is one of the good ones. Yeah. And I mean, that's high praise indeed that people are starting to rewatch it already and see what they might have missed the first time and see if they can find humor in it. Tell me this, in terms of the gore and all that, there's a high gore rate as well. Oh, there is. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, as I said, there's a lot of blood. So obviously there's a lot of gore. But at one stage, a character has their uh, scalp ripped off, which is, you know, it's an interesting thing to see at a Tuesday morning press show, John. Um, <laughs> yes. There is an awful lot of killing going on. There's an awful lot of freaky voices. Uh, the you know everyone will know by now the the the, the bit from the trailer where the the mother tells her kids that mommy's with the maggots now. That yeah. for me was the freakiest thing. Uh, yeah. It is quite imaginative with its gore. I will say that that you know gory horror horror has has never been my favorite. Um, but you know if you're if you're gonna have a little bit of fun with it as as Lee Cronin does in this. That, that that's fair enough so it is genuinely terrifying it is quite claustrophobic i mean this idea again that it's sort of a, a haunted house thriller or horror in that apartment block you know they mm-hmm. can't leave there's no way out you know they're on the top floor so he, ha- he does you know there is a lot of fun to be had within those four walls so it is quite effective in terms of the gore and in terms of the scares yeah, no, I've just seen the trailer and a couple of clips and that scene where the mother talks about, or that character talks about mother being with the maggots and that horrible, horrible. voice, genuinely scary. And I just, for I don't know why, but did remind me slightly of Linda Blair when her voice changes in The Exorcist yes. all those years ago. So uh, it sounds like Lee Cronin was having fun, but also made a pretty fine film. So what are you going to say stars wise for Evil Dead Rise? I think so. I think this film does what it's supposed to, and it does it very well. Um, and I'd also, I'd really like to see Lee Cronin. Uh, I mean, he's done something original with the Evil Dead films. I mean, even just taking it out of the countryside as well, mm. that's, that's, that gives it a bit of originality. Um, I'll say what I said once after I had seen The Hole in the Ground. 
I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next. I want to see an original story, something that doesn't involve, you know, a saga that's already there. If he gets to make another one, okay, I I trust that he would do something fresh with it again. But I want to see an original horror now from Lee Cronin. So he's a great director. This film is very effective. Does what it's supposed to. I'll give it four stars out of five. Four stars. Excellent. So that's four stars for Evil Dead Rise. Let's take a quick clip. Who's your friend, Cass? She's called Staphne. Oh. Hey, Staphne. What's her uh, situation? Danny told me that when this building used to be a bank, a teller got caught stealing and hung himself. And if you walk around with coins in your pockets, his ghost hears the jingle. And he scares you to death so he can take all your money. It's true. If he comes after me, Stephanie will scare him to death first. Ghosts aren't real. Have you ever seen one? Mm Mm-mm. Then how do you know they don't exist? Because I only believe what I can see. That's a clip there from Evil Dead Rise, which I should say is in cinemas from this weekend, the 21st of April. And Chris Rosser, who I'm talking to, gave it four stars and it scared him because he's a bit of a scaredy cat by all accounts. So another movie we're going to review quickly is Missing, which uh, seems to largely take place on a variety of screens, if I understand it correctly, Chris. Yeah, that's it. It's called the screen. These films are called screen life films. Did you know that? No, screen life films. Screen life, yeah. Okay. Um, and I think the makers of this and other films like Unfriended, you might remember Unfriended, The Dark Web. I think all of these filmmakers who set their films on someone's laptop, I think they've sorely overestimated the audience's interest in that particular genre. It's it's a it's like a it's like a weird it's like the weird cousin of the found footage genre where. Yeah. All, where all of the events you're watching in the film play out on a laptop or a smartphone or some sort of device where, you know, the characters are literally looking at us. It's almost like we are the camera. It's, 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 a, it's a very peculiar genre. I but- did see one, sorry to interrupt you, a couple of years ago called Spiral or Spree, I think it was. No, it was Spiral with the kid from... Uh, Stranger Things and that largely takes place on a guy filming in a taxi it wasn't bad actually but it does become quite intense after a while where you're just watching this stuff but anyway battle on Chris yeah this one is actually uh, it does become very intense after an hour and this is this this almost gets to the two hour mark so that's 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 one big flaw but this is actually a standalone sequel to Searching which is to say that this film Searching from five years ago it was about a father looking for his missing daughter and using her devices and all of her apps to, to try and find her so although this is set in the same world it doesn't feature any of the same characters because that would just be ridiculous that would be a Home Alone 2 job this sort of thing can't <laughs> happen to the same family again um, but what we have is an 18 year old uh, named June, portrayed by Storm Reed, who's very good here. Um, and she is annoyed at her mum because her mum, Grace, played by Nia Long, seems to have moved on from her dad. So her dad died when she was little. She's now 18, but she's still annoyed that Grace has a new boyfriend. She has a new boyfriend, uh, Kevin, played by Ken Long, and they're off to Columbia. So it's the typical thing. She doesn't say goodbye properly to the parent before they go on holiday. Of course, you know something bad's going to happen. So while she's off partying with her friends in the house for a week, she fully expects them to come home after seven days. They don't. And she does notice a couple of things that might suggest there was some foul play involved. So the longer that she's away an investigation starts by the police but of course the police according to you know this teenager they're not doing their job properly so she's going to have to don her digital detective hat and then again i didn't see this but from the trailer there's a intimation that all is not what it seems and there may be more to her mother and certainly her boyfriend's mother 
Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that it's uh, it's kind My of mother's a, boyfriend, I should say. Yeah, yeah, it's a mystery pile on top of another mystery, and the film just full of probably too many mysteries. Um, but the gist of it is that you know this teenager is essentially going to sit in her bedroom or a sitting room and you know hack into the the, the boyfriend's Gmail, hack into her mom's, all of their social media. Uh, she she even kind of you know befriends this uh, uh, this cleaner in Colombia who she FaceTimes and gets to kind of check out all of the shops and all of the restaurants and places that the couple was in in Colombia just to see if there's any sort of record of them because they seem to have vanished from the hotel. So you kind of have to you know it it does. <laughs> you kind of have to leave your brain at the door for some of this because yeah. you will be asking too many questions about how on earth could a teenager do this but at the same time while i was thinking it was quite far-fetched i think probably the more far-fetched uh, uh, aspect is that the filmmakers think that we're going to sit here for two hours without checking our own phones or without checking our watches because <laughs> it's an awful lot to ask the audience to basically sit there and stare at all of these different apps and all of these different screen time sessions and all of these different uh, digital, you know, uh, oddities and, and, and not, you know, start to lose your mind. So for yeah. the first hour, I was sitting there thinking, okay, well, this is actually quite fun and I'm enjoying, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying trying to solve this mystery. And the film also establishes a sort of rule book, which is to say that all of the action can only take place inside you know if the camera is on these people and then on in the second hour i found it just abandoned that and it starts doing things that you're like well, well how come there's a camera there or how come who's editing this you know i think i was maybe asking too many questions because i was i was sitting there too long john um, yeah. so and I just, so the, the central conceit of it all being taking place on various like a, a facetime or a, a, a gmail account that you're looking through this business, does it change after an hour or it just gets so laborious you start to get annoyed by it a little bit of both it just gets a little bit laborious and you start to kind of think, okay, well, I, I just need to, to see, you know, real people interacting. Yeah. Here. Need to, I need to escape from this computer, but there, but there are just a few too many twists and turns and it also kind of spoils itself a little bit. You know, it wants the audience to, to, it wants you to think that, you know, the, the film is always a step ahead of you, but we were actually, you know, too, I was speaking to people after it and a lot of people seem to be two or three steps ahead of it. So it's not as clever okay. as it thinks it is, but I will say there are some nice ideas. Uh, there, this could make, you know, I, I think this genre of film it could work for, for short stories. It could work for, yeah. you know, uh, an anthology series where you're only doing something like 40 minutes of it at a time. Um, and there are some lovely performances in there too. As I said, Storm Reed, who I uh, last saw in, I think it was maybe A Wrinkle of Time, that that Disney film with Oprah and Reese Witherspoon, mm -hmm. time, which was a bit of a disaster. But again, nice performances. And she is quite quite, quite good here. It's just, it's just a bit too much of it. Um, so, and also just the, the, the plot goes absolutely bananas in the final 20 minutes and kind of spoils itself. And as I said, it starts doing all of these things where you're thinking, how come there's a camera set up over there? And I shouldn't right. hear this. I shouldn't be able to see what's happening there. It kind of breaks its own rules, which is a shame. Yeah. 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 It sounds like it loses its own logic as you say. Okay. And sorry, that movie I was trying to think of was Spree. That's that's what I was okay. not not Spiral. Spiral is a, a horror movie with Chris yes. Rock. Yes, but anyway, so uh, it sounds like this is maybe trying to be too clever for its own good. So, what are you going to say, stars wise, for missing? Yeah, I think it's perfectly fine until it isn't. <laughs> it just lost me in <laughs> like that a lot last... of things in life. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think it just lost me in that last half hour. But uh, look, it's good fun for an hour or so. I think there could be a future for this genre, as I say, in anthology series or in short mm -hmm. films. But 111 minutes of this stuff, John, is too much. So I'll yeah. go with this. I'll go with the three stars, and I'll just say, just approach this one with caution. 
Okay. You know, you were, of course, on the show two weeks ago with Aoife Barry talking about your favorite comedies and you made the point 90 minutes for any comedy. You really like movies across genres to be a tight 90 to two hours, don't you? I'm sensing that. I think I do. I think I make the exception for someone like Scorsese. And the reason I mentioned him is I've just been reading that, you know, his new one, Killers of the Flower Moon, is going to clock in at an official runtime of three and a half hours. And when I see that, I go, well, do you know what? We only get Scorsese every few years. Yeah. I'm happy to give over an afternoon slash early evening to Scorsese. And then in some science fiction stories, two hours is worth it. But if you're making comedies, horrors, little thrillers like this that rely Mm. on, you know, uh, trying to keep you know trying to stay as i said one step ahead of the audience because it's a mystery you've only you've got a very short time to do that i think that in in order to make it effective so 90 minutes you know hundreds that's the cutoff point yeah fair enough fair enough the man he, he he speaks he speaks great sense there i have to say so that is three stars for missing which is also on general release from this friday the 21st of april and chris wasser gives it three stars chris thanks a million thanks john Chris Wasser there chatting to me about Evil Dead Rise and latterly Missing, which are both in cinemas from this weekend. Up next, theatre director Gary Hines chats about her favourite film. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined now by Gary Hines, artistic director and co-founder of the famed Druid Theatre Company. Gary, hi, how are you? I'm very well, John. How are you? Very well. So I was saying to you before we came on air, I've been doing this show four years, and surprisingly, no one has ever chosen this classic of uh, modern cinema. So will you tell our listeners what it is and why? Well, it's uh, from the um, uh, original novel, Dr. Zhivago, and it was made into a film which was released, I think, probably about the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically the story of uh, a number of characters caught up in the uh, revolution and the revolutionary events of Russia. And it's it goes through their entire life. So it's an epic film and it's still probably one of the biggest films I've ever seen. And it left a huge impact on me. I think I was a teenager when I saw it. I remember the cinema I saw it in Galway, which is no longer there. Uh, and I remember the feeling and and the images of it. I think it appealed to my sense of a big story and my sense of uh, the lives of a lot of characters being caught up in events um, that are not necessarily of their making. And of course, that's what I'm about to head into myself with uh, with the O'Casey uh, trilogy. So in terms of Dr. Shivago, it's a sprawling epic. It's it's yes. over three hours, if yes, memory right. serves. Do you think it was the romance of it or the the sheer power of the storytelling that struck this young 18-year-old or whatever you were at the time? Oh, I, I think probably the romance of it for certain. And I mean, like the, the, the sense of a love that is never to be but will never die. I think that definitely, definitely went straight into my heart. Mm. But then also, as I said, a sense of, of great events and great continents and there was nothing small or domestic about it. Um, it was huge and I think that appealed to me. 
And the the two standouts, I mean, there are many actors in it from Tom Courtney to all sorts yeah. of people, but Omar Sharif as the dashing lead and also yeah. the beautiful. If we're still allowed to say beautiful about people, I'm not sure I get confused. But to you're my allowed mind, to say the, it about, if you're not allowed to say uh, beautiful about Judy Christie, then yes. Certainly has ended as far yes, as Yes, exactly. So the beautiful Julie Christie there. And I've only seen it once and it's a, it's a long time ago at this stage, but their interactions are, are, are beautiful and tragic. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, you know, I can remember when he sort of uh, traveled through the snow and the snow blindness in his eyes and the redness around his eyes and everything. You just want to go up and just, you know, sort of feed him sips of brandy until he recovers in your arms. I mean, he's, you know, he he remains then, of course, the epitome of romance and still is since then. Yeah. And he's, the character he plays, he's a doctor, obviously, and he's also yeah. a poet, right? And he's also a poet, yeah. And um, again, it was that sense of those two things, the, 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 the poetic side, but the fact that he helped people and sort of, made them well, um, you know, the, the, I suppose you could say nearly all human life was there in a way. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was. And I suppose it's maybe a hackneyed question, but I mean, this was taking place in a revolution in Russia around 1917 and Lena coming to power and then the civil war when some people didn't want that or whatever. Are there parallels to what's going on in that part of the world today or or that close part of the world? Or maybe there aren't. Well, well, I mean, of course there are in some senses, you know, but I mean, um, you'd like to think that back then it was a fight for for revolution and for, you know, you you weren't aware of the subtleties on it, whereas the sheer barbarity, well, the sheer barbarity of what happened then too. Uh, I suppose one of the things that that strikes me is that, you know, having having been born within a few years of the end of the Second World War, um, I never thought to see um a war like the current war uh in ukraine mm-hmm. i thought that was part of the past and yeah. to see it happening all over again is extraordinarily uh depressing i think uh, and tell me this is dr shivago a movie you watch regularly or is it one that's just i don't know you know calcified uh, in your collective it's memory? one that's calcified i think i don't i have watched it since i've watched maybe maybe two three times since you know to watch watch it on better screens and so on yes but i think it's more the impression that it made on me then than it is frequent rewatching. yeah sure well look it's a, it's a fine choice and, and and a classic with a capital c now you mentioned there your own upcoming uh magnum opus which is druid yes. o'casey so for people who don't know, it's going to be Juno and the Paycock, the Plow and the Star, Shadow of a Gunman. People will go to the theatre theater and see the three plays performed in one day. That's right. Um, well, they have a choice. They, they can either see the three plays performed in one day, starting at one o'clock in the afternoon and finishing at the usual time of around 10.30, or they can see each individual play on three consecutive evenings. Um, but the way I would see them is to see all three together. And indeed, that's the way the audiences uh, are, are seem to be wanting to see them at this stage because almost all our Trilogy Day performances are sold out. So wow. 
in Galway and, and then they're almost sold out in Dublin. So, you know, it, we, we've we've been doing this now for the last 20 years or so. And I think there's something, it, they seem to appeal to audiences, I think for, for lots of reasons. First of all, they have to obviously entertain you and be good plays. And you can yes. only just do that when you go into the theatre. But I think they also appeal as a sense of event. I think an audience develop a closeness with one another and develop a kind of a stronger bond as an audience than 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 they do in a shorter time and the stories of friendships being struck up at one of these events or whatever. So yeah, um, but in, in particular, um, for us with these three plays now, I mean they were written over a period of of five years, one after the other. They were written by a writer who was writing the plays within a few years of the events which form the background to the plays. Uh, the 1916 Rising, uh, the War of Independence and the Civil War. I mean, what an extraordinary thing that uh, O'Casey had such a, a place, such a viewpoint on these <laughs> plays. And that then he turned and wrote these plays and the Abbey produced them. So uh, all three plays were done within four years of each other. Yeah, it's and, an incredible achievement. It's an incredible achievement. And, and, and of course, it, it was it was very much um, the saving at the Abbey at the time because financially things were very, very difficult. And these plays were were what we would call nowadays instant hits, you know. Yeah. They, they proved hugely popular and packed out the theatre, as they've continued to do in the Abbey and many other theatres throughout the world since then. Yeah. You you kind of made allusion to, to people going and kind of discovering them in the dark there with people around them. You know, on this show, in terms of the cinema, we talk a lot about... The changes in cinema, some people even talk about the death of cinema because of streaming and all those things. And and particularly yeah. we talked about that during the pandemic. But I was wondering, and of course, during the pandemic, theatres experimented with, you know, remote recordings and, and virtual things. But is there something, and it's a very big question, I understand, but is there something unchangeable about theatre that it's not open to the same vagaries that maybe cinema and movie watching is because no matter what happens it seems to me but I'd love your opinion on it that there's an elementalness to the theatre in that it has to be people on a stage and people in an audience and that in a way that's never going to change so it, it has a yeah. strength that's going to keep it alive but what's your sense of that? Well, my sense of it is exactly as you describe it. Um, you know, uh, theatre has to have uh, a couple of, of essential things. It has to have uh, one, at least one actor speaking and or being and at least one actor watching that other actor being. And without that, you cannot have theatre. So our rehearsal room is is not theatre. Theatre can't exist until the audience come into the space and help make it theatre. Mm. That sense, it's that's why it's a terribly expensive art form, uh, but that's why, at its very, very best, why it's so special, because it's, it's you know, you, you will never 
replicate again what you get. Yeah. It's why uh, why theatre performance can vary from from evening to evening or day to day. Yeah. No one audience is ever the same, and so therefore no one performance is ever exactly the same as another performance. And in a kind of related question, I was talking to Paddy Brannock, the film director, two yeah. weeks ago on this show. And he was talking about how in the 90s, when he was starting off, there was very little received wisdom. Like in a way, being a film director when he started was a bit like yeah. being an astronaut in the 50s. You know, and he was yeah. talking about how now he goes into colleges and all that kind of stuff. But I was wondering when you started out, Is is the analogy the same or is it completely different? Because we do have a rich heritage of of making plays in Ireland. We're talking about O'Casey and Yates and the Abbey and all those things. So does it seem like less a wild thing to start than maybe going into the cinema back in the 70s? No, it it seems perfect. It seems perfect. I wish I had thought that because that's exactly (laughs) what it was for us as well. In the sense of, like, for instance... uh, I'm not sure I had ever seen a professional play before we founded a theatre called the Professional Theatre Company of Galway. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was, you know, uh, the uh, my knowledge of plays was was the amateur movement. Thank God for it. Um, Mm. And that's where I cut my teeth. So when we were doing when we did something like Playboy, none of us had ever seen Playboy before. Um, and so we were kind of, we were in a Garden of Eden situation, I think. And, I, I, I you know, on reflection, that was very good for us. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then just finally then, so if, if you said some of these day-long performances are sold out, but for the few remaining tickets that are left uh, for Druid O'Casey, which is going to be in Galway, Belfast and Dublin, of course, yes. uh, in the Lyric and the Abbey, people can go to druid.ie, is that it? And That's all right. sorts druid, of other places. Druid, and druid.ie are um, on the, in the Lyric um uh or on the Abbey websites, any yeah. any of the three. And obviously the Galway Arts Festival Town Hall Theatre. So because we're the very first performances of it will take place during the Galway Arts Festival. Yes. And so they're in Galway in July, Belfast in August, and the end of August in the Abbey Theatre. Gary, I was going to call you the grand dame of Irish theatre, but that well, might age you age you terribly, so I won't do absolutely. that. Oh I've already aged myself by picking Dr. Shivago as my favourite film. Anyhow, go ahead. <laughs> not at all, not at all. And if you do want to find out more about Druid O'Casey, you can go to the various websites that Gary just mentioned. Her favourite movie is Dr. Shivago. Gary Hines, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thanks a million, John. Who sent you here, Shivago? No one sent me here, Commander. I'm going to Uriatin with my wife and child. They're on the train from Moscow. Yes, we've checked that. Then? You put your knife with a fork and a spoon and it looks quite innocuous. Perhaps you travel with a wife and child for the same reason. How? Uriatin is occupied by white guards. Is that why you're going there? No. We're going on to Barikino. Not through Uriatin. It's under shell fire. Commander, I'm not a white agent. A clip there from Dr. Shivago, the favourite movie of Gary Hines, the co-founder and artistic director of Druid Theatre Company. And full details of those various O'Casey in a day shows uh, 
can all be found on druid.ie. That is it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com, or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. Thank you for listening. Have a safe week ahead, and I'll talk to you next week.